the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God has been calling the nation of Israel to love Him supremely. Moses, through several speeches, has listed out how God would bless the nation if they humbly obeyed the laws and statutes given them. They were to be a unique people, wholly devoted to God in everything they did. God desired them to walk close with Him and to not forget their covenant when they entered the Promised Land. Moses' last act as leader of the Israelites was to bring up Joshua and to teach a song to the Israelites. This song would remind the people of all that God did for them in times past and how He would deal with them should they turn away from their God. It was also to remind them that they were only special and unique because of their intimate relationship with God. His blessing on their life had nothing to do with anything they could offer or do for God. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 31. Verse 31, For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. The pagan nations, they lived for themselves, seeking happiness in the pursuit of their own ways, but never finding it. So just as Israel provoked God to wrath, these pagan nations have also stored up God's wrath. And so God must deal with them and rescue his people. Now, why does God make this point? Two or three ideas here. Number one, none of us should ever become prideful. At some point, the church became very disdainful of the Jewish people. There's a past there. The earliest persecutors of the church were the Jewish people. Most of them were Jews themselves that were being persecuted. But after a time, the church became predominantly Gentile, less Jewish. And then over time, they became more influential than the Jewish people. And there was a little bit of payback. Now, is that biblical? No, that's horribly unbiblical. But at some point, the church began to think, well, we're superior. God picked us because we're better. Ignoring the fact that we have a whole chapter in the book of Romans that reminds us not to do that. <laughs> do not boast against the branch. He was lopped off because you've been grafted in as a wild branch. So if you could be grafted into the tree as a wild branch, how much more could the natural branch be put back in? You're no better than they are. You know, God, he spares Israel, number one, to remind us that we should never think we're hot stuff. We should never think we're superior to anyone else. If people have the impression of you as a Christian, well, you just think you're the only one who does things right, you might want to re-examine your heart. People shouldn't have that opinion of us. We should be transparent with our own failures and certainly with our own asking for forgiveness. 
But the second reason that the Lord does this, I think, is to show Israel that I didn't save you because you deserved it. I didn't rescue you from Babylon. I'm not going to rescue you from all these other Midianites and other groups, you know, down throughout their history. I didn't do that because of your righteousness or because I owed it to you or because you were so holy. I did it because that's who I am. And I didn't want people to misunderstand me. I love the Psalms. The Psalms are really cool because they display every kind of human emotion that you can experience. I mean, anger, right? We have doubt, unbelief, and then of course, great faith and joy. I mean, all those things, they're all mishmashed in there together, sometimes in the same Psalm. And so within those songs, you know, we, we have things that we latch onto that may specifically, you know, minister to us as we are in a similar situation. And so we could sing a song like, who in the sun sets free is free indeed. I am who you say I am. It focuses on us a little bit more, but obviously it's because of what God has done for us. But then we can also sing a song that just talks about the majesty of who he is. Both of them have equal weight. Here's where the problem comes in. If all we sing about is us, then what begins to happen? We start to get a skewed opinion of ourselves. That's why, all the, that's why the Psalms have all those things in them because our own worship needs to be balanced with all those things. If you just talk about who the Lord is all the time, you can have a very legalistic and personal relationship with God. So it's not good to just do that either. It's good to do both. It's good to have all those facets. There are songs that I've sung to the Lord in church that have talked about loneliness, have talked about, about pain, have talked about sorrow. There's nothing wrong with that. Just don't stay there all the time. You have a pretty depressed church. It's good for them to be reminded that the Lord didn't do this for them. He did it because it's of who he is. So there's many reasons here why the Lord does what he does. All of them designed to bring Israel to a place of humility and the pagans to a place of humility. The reality is, is we all deserve God's wrath they had stored up God's wrath too. And so God will deal with them to rescue his people. In verse 34, the Lord explains, is this not laid up in store for me and sealed up against my treasures? He says, to me belongs vengeance and recompense. So their foot, it shall slide in due time. For the day of, these are the pagan nations that judged Israel. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Why? For the Lord shall judge his people. Again, King James here is probably a little incorrect. The word judge there means defend or provide justice for. The Lord shall defend his people. He'll repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there, there is none shut up or left. The word there, repent himself, it means to comfort yourself because you've brought justice. There are obviously situations that I would never want to be in as a as a judge, I would never want to be, and I've, I've served on jury duty a few times, and it's a heavy thing to, to have to weigh out a situation and pronounce judgment. It's the right thing to do sometimes, but it's a heavy thing. Well, there was one situation that we were in, and as a jury, we went back to deliberate, and it was very clear that there was, there was no evidence whatsoever to convict the individual. But there had a few people there who had been personally affected by some of the things that this person was accused of, and they were ready to go get them. I was so glad when we got a note from the judge and it said, you're dismissed. I have, there is not enough evidence for this case. I am dismissing it. Because then it was like, man, I don't have to argue with all these, these couple of people in the room that are out for blood. I don't have to argue and fight with them because I was like, I would have that weighing on my conscience if we ended up convicting this person when I didn't think it was right. 
Now, on the other hand, there are situations where we've had to render a verdict of saying, no, this is guilty and justice needs to be done. But there's a comforting thing even in that to know that they won't be able to hurt anyone else, to know that they'll be behind bars and hopefully for a long time so that no one else will be affected by their crimes. You know, the Lord, he comforts himself when he brings justice. And so he says he will defend his people. He'll comfort himself for his servants when he sees that they're in a mess. And he shall say, and this is to Israel, where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? And I love the King James there. It gives a little R there, right? Because they're idols. Where are their idols that they trusted in? Where are they now? which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and they drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. But see now, because they won't. So the Lord says, see now that I, even I, am he. There is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Now, that verse right there is used for many things. People say, well, this is why God doesn't heal or this is why he does heal. But the reality is the lesson here has nothing to do with that. The lesson is that God won't restore Israel because they got their act together. God will restore Israel because he'll see them in their helpless, enslaved, and spiritually lost condition and feel compassion for them. He'll see them and it'll be like they were back in that lonely desert with the howling animals. But the Lord will swoop down in his own mercy again to shield them, to care for them, and to protect them once again. Oftentimes when I've made a wreck of my own life by disobeying God, the enemy whispers to me that I have no hope of forgiveness or restoration. He'll say, look how you betrayed God. You can't go back. You're no child of his anymore. All of that is true for Israel. The Lord says, where are the gods you've trusted in? How have they helped you now that things are bad? And yet God, because of his mercy, he swoops down and says, know this, I am your deliverer. I alone step into situations like this and rescue. There are no gods beside me. He says, for if I lift up my hand to heaven, verse 40, and say I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and I will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. So rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will render vengeance to his adversaries and he will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And thus we see God's mercy is what prompts him to step up to fight for Israel when they haven't earned it. It is God's mercy that causes him to intervene. And that is a cause for all the world to rejoice, not just Israel. This is where the song does directly apply to us. This is where you and I can rejoice. Why? Because if God can restore them after this, then guess what? He can restore you and me after we've blown it too. Amen? I can honestly say that is the only thing that has kept me going sometimes is the knowledge of looking at Israel from beginning to end and how God's mercies were new every morning that he had compassion upon them and he rescued them. I long ago 
gave up the idea that I could ever come to God and go, you know, God, I've, I've kind of done my part here. It's time for you to step your game up. I've long since learned that my only hope, and it's a wonderful hope, is to cast myself on his mercy because they're everlasting. They're new every morning. However much I used yesterday, there's plenty enough for today. And it'll be the same tomorrow. That is the only thing that keeps me walking. Because there is nothing that I could ever look at in my life that would make me feel, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I think I've got this. As Israel finishes learning this song and all these thoughts are swirling in their mind, Moses is a final word of exhortation. In verse 44, Moses came and he spoke all the words of the song in the ears of the people. He and Hoshea, which is it's an Anglicized form of Joshua, he and Joshua, the son of Nun, he and they were the ones who were responsible to teach the song. So after they had taught the nation the song and the nation knew it and they could sing it now themselves, it says, Moses made an end of speaking all these words to the children of Israel. What did he say? Verse 46. And he said unto them, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do, all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing, you shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it. Moses says, set your hearts upon all the words I've explained to you today. The word there, set your hearts, it means take it to heart, embrace it, make it important to you. And if there's nothing you leave here with today, you need to leave here today knowing that the Lord is compassionate. He is full of mercy. Yes, I warn you, stay on the right path. Stay close to the Lord. You're headed for trouble if you don't. God will deal with you kindly, gently, mercifully, but if you keep stubbornly persisting in your own self-confidence, he will discipline you. But whether you're avoiding that or whether you've already experienced that discipline, know that the Lord wants to save you by his mercy again and again and again and again. I used to get confused because there are passages in the New Testament that talk about salvation in a present tense or even a future tense at times. And I got confused. I thought, well, I thought I'm already saved. Like, what am I being saved from if I'm already saved? Of course, I was a young Christian. <laughs> And as you walk with the Lord longer and longer, you figure out what? He's saving me every day, right? And he's going to keep saving me to the end of my days. Keep rescuing me from myself. Rescuing me from all those little deviations. That's why David said, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I mean, think about it. Is there ever a man who needed as much mercy as David did? We talk about David in so wonderful terms. What did David do well? Honestly. Can you think of anything he did well? He didn't do marriage well. Hey, he fought well. He's oh, a good warrior, okay? What estimation is that to God, though? He's a bad husband. He's a bad dad. Bad king in some ways. He had many areas of failure. In fact, if you look at Saul's life, and you measure it against David's, and you say, let's list Saul's failures and let's list David's failures. You've got a much longer list for David. So why is David the man after God's own heart? David was a man who understood repentance 
And so even though Saul had less flaws, he was an unrepentant man. He didn't understand God's mercy. He always felt like God was giving him a raw deal. Always felt like God owed him a little bit better. David, he consistently threw himself on God's mercies. David, after everything with Bathsheba came out, and the Lord told him, he said, listen, I'm gonna take the child's life because of your sin, because I can't have others making folly of me, you know, thinking that I don't care about sin. It's a heavy consequence, David, but that's what has to happen. What did David do? He fasted and prayed. Why? He just knew how merciful God was. He knew there was a shot that God wouldn't do it. When David sinned by taking a census of the people, the Lord gave him a choice. He said, listen, I can give you months of war, you know, at the hands of your enemies. You'll suffer at the hands of your enemies. He gave him another choice I had to do from the outside, or you can experience three days of pestilence. In other words, you'll be in my hands. And then David said, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to put myself in your hands because I know you're merciful. And what happened? The Lord saw the people, the sheep of Israel, and what was they were experiencing because of this pestilence, and he stopped it. He didn't go the full length. He showed mercy. David understood that. And David, when he fell, he would come back to the Lord. He would cast himself upon God's mercy and start walking with the Lord again. And that is why he's a man after God's heart, not because he didn't fail. Take it to heart, embrace it, set your hearts on these things. And of course, Moses isn't just referring to the song here. He's referring to the entirety of Deuteronomy. God's love, God's commands, God's warnings to love him supremely back for all that he'd done for them. Take it to heart, he says. And command it to your children to observe to do it, all the words of this law. Take it to your heart yourselves and pass it on to your kids. Why? Why was it so important that Israel did this? Well, it's because of something else we've already learned in this book so far. For it is not a vain thing for you to do that. It's not a vain thing because it is your life. You know, it's interesting, the word vain there is the same word that's used for idols. It means idle words which have no benefit or advantage. God's word, they're not idle, his words are not idle words that give you no benefit or no advantage. It's interesting, earlier Moses had told them that God was their life. Now he says that God's word is their life. For God's word explains to us who God is, how we can know him, and what he wants. And can I tell you an important truth tonight? That will never be a waste of time. Investing into God's word will never be a waste of time. And so I ask you tonight, do you see God's word that way? As a waste of time? Do you see obeying him, serving others, and maybe even sharing your faith as not worth your investment of time? God help us to see the reality of how awesome he is and what he saved us from, that we never become satisfied with lesser things. Amen? Now the chapter ends with a little tidbit here. I'm just going to read through it quickly and we'll probably be done after that. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses that selfsame day. So he's done now. His task is done. And he said, Get you up into this mountain, Abarim, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against opposite of Jericho. And I want you to behold the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for possession." Come up on the mountain. I want you to see it. You can't go in, but I want you to see it. And after you've seen it, 
then you will die, verse 50, in the mount whither you go up, and you'll be gathered unto your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Oren was gathered unto his people. Now why does Moses get to see it but not experience it? Because he trespassed against me, uh, against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not sanctify me in the midst of the children of Israel. And yet, you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go thither unto the land which I give to the children of Israel. Now, this was something that God took seriously and he would not give in to this. Moses prayed on multiple occasions and said, Lord, can I just see it and uh, can I just go into it? And the Lord said, no. I mean, Moses had to believe God was merciful to even keep asking. But the Lord said, no. Moses, you, you made me just like every other pagan deity when you smote the rock. You gave them the impression I was angry at them and I wasn't. So no, I, they need, that needs to be indelled in their mind. Man, why couldn't Moses go in? Because God wasn't angry with us, Moses was. God wanted them to never forget that. So he would die up there on the mountain. But the Lord says, but I want you to see it. Even there, the Lord was merciful. Now, one final thought. In the New Testament, Jesus was up on a mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And who did he speak with there? Moses and Elijah. Even there, God was merciful. Even there, God didn't let the full weight of the discipline go the entire length. And if we understand prophecy correctly, Moses won't just get to stand on that little hilltop for a few minutes. But if he's one of those two prophets for three and a half years, he will get the opportunity to preach of God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace to his people. A people that have walked in unbelief for almost 2,000 years. And he'll preach to them of his son. He'll get to be in the land. He'll get to minister there. So, don't let the enemy deceive you. You say, but pastor, well, I deserve what I've got. I mean, where I'm at right now, the mess I'm in, I put myself there. I mean, this is, God's disciplining me and I deserve it. I can't pray to get out of it. Like David, who knows what the Lord will do? Throw yourself on his mercy. What else are you gonna do? Throw yourself on his mercy. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, it says that he who comes to God must believe that he is that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He says, let us come boldly before his throne of grace. Why? So we can get what we deserve? No. We might find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. It's always mercy. It's always not because we deserve it. It's always by his grace that we come. So if you're in a fix, cast yourself on his mercy. He might break you in the process, but... Can you think of a better place to be broken? I'd rather that than be shattered by the world, shattered by my own flesh. It's not gonna take care of me. What better place than God's mercy, amen? Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this song, Lord. It, it's a heavy song. It, it shows us that Israel frequently did their own thing, frequently, Lord, missed out on what you had for them because of their stubbornness, their self-righteousness, Lord, their selfishness, they felt their self-confidence, Lord. Help us not to fall prey to those things. And then, Lord, when we do, help us not to listen to the lies of the enemy. 
but to come run into your arms, to come run into the throne of grace because it's the only place we can find any help. It's always your mercy. It's always your grace. We never deserve your help. We never deserve your blessings. So Lord, teach us to be people who consistently call upon that grace and mercy because of what Christ did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. We are no different from anyone who does not know God. We could never deserve the blessing of knowing God and to be known by Him. We certainly did not earn it. It is a gift given to us through faith in Jesus Christ because of God's mercy and grace. We must remember this in the highs and lows of life. God is good. It is His nature. There is nothing we can add to or diminish from all that He is and does. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.